Mosgrove. Welcome to Open to Debate. At Carleton University, a union local is fighting for a fair deal for its workers and getting ready for a strike. Across Ontario and Canada, unionized workplaces are fighting similar battles, even while the balance of power continues to favor employers by default. Democratized workplaces produce better results for employees and everyone down the line too. Recent gains in Canada and the United States might point to a new dawn for unions as people struggle with the cost of living crisis and unfavorable working conditions, but the future, as it tends to be, is uncertain. We can, however, follow the clues and ask, what does a campus labor struggle tell us about unions in Canada? My guests on this episode of Open to Debate are Noreen Colley Lefebvre, president of the Canadian Union of Public Employees Local 4600, and a PhD candidate in geography at Carlson University. Also, Graham Cox, a research representative at QP. All right, let's start with what's going on at Carlson University and uh, QP uh, 4600, and then build from that to the state of labor across the country. Let's start with you, Noreen. Can you take us through who your union represents, for one, and then what's happening at the university? Oh, man, that's such a broad question. I mean, not who the union represents. That's an easy one. So QB4600 is the union that represents teaching assistants, service assistants, and internally funded research assistants. And make sure make sure you ask me more about that later. Okay. Um, and then contract instructors. Like and me. We're, like you, just like you. And we're we're the largest union on campus. Let's get into yeah. the state of, of bargaining, what you're after and what you're meeting from the employer. And, and I want to open with this because I want to use this as, as a way to jump off into a broader discussion about the state of labor in Canada. But I think it's important for people out there to, to get a sense of what it is that people on the ground at university doing the work that people purport to care about until, of course, you know, they're asked to actually pay for it. What's happening with that? Yeah, so our collective agreements for both units expired at the end of August. And so we sent our notice of intent to bargain in May, and then we elected our negotiations teams. And we really, we started to meet with the employer in August, and we spent pretty much two months bargaining on protocols. So sort of the parameters of what bargaining would look like. And so we didn't really start in earnest with our proposals until October. We spent a really long time on the protocols because it was really important to the negotiations team that the employer understand that we're negotiating on behalf of the membership. Like we're the elected representatives, but we answer to the members. And since we're bargaining their collective agreement, they should have the right to be in the room. We weren't asking that they have a seat at the negotiations table to speak with the employer, but that they be allowed to observe. And we would speak with the members who came to observe when we would caucus. Um, but that took a really long time because we came into the room asking for open negotiations and dropped down to 10 members. And, you know, Carlton returned with zero and then went up to one. And we settled at four for unit, four observers for unit one and three for unit two. And like at any given point, we have around a thousand unit two members. And then for unit uh, one, it's more like 3000 or a little bit higher. So there's a number of things that both units have in common, like wages, 
benefits. We've asked for a centralized accommodations process. Both units were looking for centralized postings, sick leave, parental leave, and then a really big one that not just our local, but the uh, faculty association has been trying to get as well, some type of parameter around TA student ratios. So those were the things we had in common. And then there's a couple of uh, unit specific proposals. So unit two is looking for like intellectual property, some funds. Unit one is also looking for some funds, like both units want an emergency fund, but unit two members want a fund so their benefits continue if they're on leave, right? That's huge. And then unit one was looking for some clearer end of term language because right now, even though our collective agreement says that you don't have to work when the university is closed, when you schedule exams to be due on December 23rd and the university closes on December 24th, you either need to violate your collective agreements mm -hmm. or have your wages clawed back, right? To figure out what to do with those take-home exams. And then extension of priority was another big one for unit one. I want to just flag a point that people tend to think that universities are institutionally left and there's plenty of reasons, evidence that that's not true, but never is it more clear than when it comes to union bargaining. Uh, universities show their true colors pretty fast. They're not left, they're at best uh, centrists, but we'll get into university bashing later on a dev episode. I got a lot <laughs> to say about the state of universities. I want to come back to this in a minute because I want to talk about inflation. But first, I want to set the stage a little bit more more generally uh, by turning here to Graham. I mean, looking at the state of collective bargaining in Ontario specifically, and the state of unions in Ontario specifically right now, have you noticed a change since Doug Ford took over as Premier of Ontario? Not that the Liberals were particularly union-friendly during their time, but ha have things shifted since Ford took power, and how is that shaping negotiations? The main take-home difference between the Liberals and the Tories is the outright hostility towards the academy that the uh, Progressive Conservative Party in they Ontario They don't try to hide has. it. <laughs> no, they're the first right out of the gate, right? The first piece of legislation they they tabled was an anti-student legislation and an attack on student union free expression on campus and then student union organizing and then uh, a continuation, but really putting uh, the foot down on the attack on uh, public financing for universities and the restructuring uh, that started under the Liberals, but then uh, was accelerated under the, under the Conservatives. I think the main piece, the main difference is just the, the outright hostility that is, that is there. And that has an effect on bargaining in the sense that we are facing a mobilization against universities from the sort of grassroots of the far right of the Conservative mobilization. And I think that that creates a hostile environment for bargaining for us at the table along with all the rest of the things that are happening in the economy uh, and the dampening down of public sector wage increases at 1% and everybody getting caught up in the fact that had over a decade of below inflation increases uh, mm -hmm. in, this, in the sector. Yeah, I mentioned this only because I don't want to let the universities off the hook here, but context in which they're coming to the table isn't particularly fortuitous for them either. I mean, we've had structural underfunding of universities in this country for very, very long, long time. Not that it isn't a problem internally, because there's a driving kind of neoliberalization of the academy, but they're also getting it from the federal and provincial governments too. But it's nice every so often when someone just doesn't even pretend, they just come out and say, I don't want to do a dance. I don't, you know, I just want you to know, I, I, I don't, I don't like you. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't. I, I, like, I like that because then I know what I'm dealing with. 
Well, I was just going to say when we, the very first day of bargaining, it started off with a speech about how valued our work is. Yeah. So I can, I can That's appreciate you know like it's care. just, yeah, right. I just want to start <laughs> with how much we care about you. Okay. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So it's true. There is something where it's just really direct, like we don't value your labor. Yeah. It <laughs> like, just call a spade a spade. Well, I was just going to say that um, in that that context of cuts to public financing for universities or shifting the way that financing goes to universities, which is probably more accurate, there hasn't been really a decline in to, uh, universities' access to financing because of the increase in tuition fees, the increase in international student recruitment, mm. where the tuition fees are uh, deregulated access to markets. One of the, the weird things that we saw during the pandemic is that universities, most of them in Ontario, made up the difference of the decline in enrollment that sort of happened at the beginning of the pandemic with increases in revenue from their investments. And this is not something we've seen in Canada before because you know we see it in the United States and the sort of private sector universities. In Ontario, we don't we hadn't seen that before. And so that surprised us a little bit in terms of revenue generation. But the universities themselves are quite wealthy. You know, they're not hurting as much as the other public sector. They are hurting in terms of public financing and the way that the structure of that financing is being delivered. But right. but the actual total revenue is going to the universities. It's not that down that much. Do they, do they pretend these are different pots of money? I mean, how, what's the shell game they play to try to, to hardball you then? The main piece that the universities do for financing is push more and more into these non-discretionary pools of money right. and rainy day funds. And the shifting sands of where money comes into the university is, is then put out. So if you look at the total amount of money that's being spent on building new buildings and prioritization of sort of corporate research ends and collaborations with the private sector, and you look at the whole suite of resources and revenues and spending on research and development that happens on campuses, all of that is not up for grabs. And so more of it right. is taken away through the restructuring of universities to what are essentially holding companies now, right? Nonprofit holding companies, as opposed to sort of monolithic kind of research institutions. Just like Aristotle intended. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was one of the, so we, we were, uh, Carlson returned on our uh, monetary proposals and they really tried to like set the stage before they returned on wages. Talked about Laurentian, right? Like somehow teaching assistants and contract instructor we're going to send Carlton the way of Laurentian and yeah, stark financial realities. And as Cody pointed out, that was like years of financial mismanagement. Mm -hmm. So, well, the, the Laurentian piece is actually uh, interesting in that way, because in fact, the way that uh, Laurentian had structured its budget, the opaque process that it went through for over a decade of structuring and spending its budgets, taking the budget process out of the Board of Governors into these opaque committees. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the Board of Governors, because universities are public institutions in Ontario, or the public universities at least, the ones that most people think about, those Board of Governors meetings are public. Mm -hmm. They're open to the public, not just people from the campus, not just the students and faculty, everybody. Anybody can go. But they had taken the budget decision-making process out of that Board of Governors into these uh, secret committees where a lot of this uh, stuff was happening. But we know, you know, if you think about a public university, the idea that it can be insolvent, right, is nonsensical because it's an right. arm of the government, of the state. The state would have to be essentially insolvent. Right. But they still pushed Laurentian into an insolvency. And this was 
uh, a decision. It wasn't insolvent. They had made the decision that they were going to say that it was insolvent and deal with it in that way to basically do what the conservatives wanted to do with all the universities, which is cut them up and make them these corporate research focused labor market need focused training vehicles uh, for capital. And I think that that's essentially what we're facing across the university. And that's what makes bargaining really difficult. It's a conscious move to, to restructure. And that's why the lowest paid folks on campus are the ones that the university is most aggressive when it comes to wage suppression. No, you know, I want to go back to you for a second. I, you know, I want to talk about inflation particularly because then I'm going to build out to a broader discussion about unionization and the importance of unions. But, uh, you know, obviously inflation is, I don't know if folks have heard, prices are up. Uh, not the grocery store's fault, I'm told, but prices are up. And obviously unions are struggling to get their members some some compensation for that. And I know there's a lot of resistance among employers to building that in. In fact, some, you know, I think it was the, the Bank of Canada head who specifically said, oh, don't, don't worry about that. Don't worry about building cost of inflation into contracts. He's particularly ambitious about inflation coming down. I don't believe him, but uh, there he is nonetheless. How big of a role has inflation played in, at the bargaining table for you? Since our members are paid a really low wage across both units, it's hit our members particularly hard, right? At Carleton campus, it's even though grad students make up about 7% of the student population, uh, grad students used 80%. Like they make up 80% use of the food bank on campus. And then contract instructors at Carleton, they're the third lowest paid in the province. We have not great benefits. Neither unit has uh, much of a parental leave and neither unit has a sick leave. So inflation has hit us really hard because food prices have increased as has the cost of shelter. So like Graham was saying, in the past decade, locals have taken pay cuts, right? Whenever they bargain under inflation. And because inflation is so high, we have included cost of living adjustments in our, mm -hmm. in our wage proposals. And those have been struck by the employer. And the good thing in a way is that because our members are really feeling the pain of inflation, I think that it was much easier or it has been easier to communicate to the members why the wage proposals that Carlton has returned are just not good enough, why we need to bargain cost of living adjustments, because otherwise it's a pay cut to the membership and like we can't afford it. Mm -hmm. We just can't afford it. Have you been getting much support from other locals, from other unions? Yeah, so the executive board has been trying to reach out to the locals across campus and then other organizations in the community. So, for example, I'll meet with QB2424, who are the staff local on campus, and I met with QASA last week. And I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard there are a couple of locals on campus that are saying if 4,600 walks, they won't cross the picket line. Hmm. Um, so we're trying to shore up our support that way, right? Like the locals that have anti-scab language or who have protections for crossing a picket line, we want solidarity packs, right? The more hmm. we can support each other and can say, you know, if you stand behind us here and we'll stand behind you when your collective agreement is up because if we can win cost of living adjustments, my hope is that more locals on campus can as well and across the sector. 
Yeah, I mean, the solidarity component is so important. And I think when we saw Doug Ford attacking education support workers late last year, uh, the solidarity component was critical in getting him to back down a little bit, or at least strategically retreat, because there was the threat of a general strike, which, you know, part of me was like, let's do it. I want to see it. I want to see it so bad. But the other part was, you know, let's actually make sure these folks get a deal, <laughs> fair treatment. These aren't, these aren't fodder for me wanting to see a general strike. These are human beings who need a fair deal. Um, but but the solidarity was such an important part. So I want to get into a little bit with you, Graham, here for a second, the state of unionization in Canada. And I want to start with some statistics. Uh, long term, there's a decline. Uh, statistics Canada points to a drop in union density from 38% in 1981 to 29% in 2022. Uh, but there's more to it. Just 13.8% of private sector workers are unionized compared to 74.1% of public sector workers whose density rates are actually up from 1997. So public sector unionization, 74% and change, pretty high, but, but truly dismal in the private sector. You know, Graham, I mean, how do you get more workplaces unionized? Let's start with that because broad solidarity means you need more folks uh, who are working in union spaces or unionized spaces. I mean, how, do, how does that work even proceed at this point? Yeah, it's interesting. The, the numbers uh, in terms of density tell a story. I think that the idea that there's a decline in union uh, density, there is a decline in density, but not a decline in numbers. We're just not growing right. as fast as the population and, and new employment uh, comes on. The reality is, is that most people don't understand how difficult it is to organize a workplace. The default is that you're under a piece of legislation called the Employment Standards Act to get access to a bunch of rights that are only available under the Labor Relations Act in Ontario. You have to actually organize a union. But to organize a union, they make it so difficult that in the context of building a democracy and building a voice in the workplace, it's, it's such a high bar. It's essentially 40% of workers in the workplace have to sign cards. Then we have a vote and 50% of those folks need to, to come out. And in the process, you have to basically engage in a fight against capital in your workplace and outside of your workplace. A lot of people don't realize that it's, you know, all of the resources basically descend to stop unionization happening. Yeah. And we like can the, see that like with the, the employer will send coffee and donuts for a few days. <laughs> well, and, and, and threaten, and then threaten, threaten to folks. fire you. Yeah. And then yeah. fire you. Yeah, right? There's plenty of that going on. And we don't speak about unions and workplace democracy very much in regular life outside of some workplaces. You know, you don't learn it in school. The reality is, though, that as the economy has shifted in Canada, the, the size of workplaces has, has declined. So each individual workplace has declined, which means that it's, and because we organize by workplace, it's much harder than to organize a huge number of workers. Now, this has changed a little bit with Amazon and these warehouses warehouse workers that are trying to organize, but then you create the, of the other end of the spectrum where you've got thousands of workers trying to organize in a very precarious employment uh, situation. So at one side, you can easily organize these tiny little workplaces one at a time. And, and we do do that as, as workers call uh, unions, we respond to that and organize. And we have these large workplaces, it's much more difficult. And we have an organizing campaign. It's a very similar sort of scenario at the University of um, Waterloo right now for the TAs and RAs. We just organized and got a certification for the sessionals. But the TAs and RAs, there's 3,500 or so or more uh, TAs. And because of the way that the semester works out, you essentially have to have 30 cards a day signed, 
right? right? So 30 cards a day. You think about the resources of sort of needed for that kind of organizing campaign, never mind the fact that you have to then, you have to convince people that why it's a good idea to sign a union card when they've never heard about it before. Uh, so it is an ongoing and a huge amount of resources that have to go into uh, organizing a workplace. And folk, most folks don't realize that. Yeah, and every jurisdiction's different, obviously. I mean, well, let's get into it here for a second with card check laws. I mean, um, you know, we've seen some some movement in British Columbia on on this. I mean, are there, I'm going to start with you, Graham, then I'm going to go to Noreen. I mean, are there specific changes in legislation that could reasonably facilitate unionization by not, by not I, I don't want to say lowering the bar, um, because look, people have a right to join or not join. They can have that conversation, but it's the, the setup is unfairly against union organizers at the moment. Is there, you know, what kind of change would, would facilitate a fair environment for unionization efforts? There's a lot of talk about card check. I'm not a huge proponent that that should be the uh, front and center. Like that's not the tip of the spear in terms of organizing and getting access. I think it's obviously it's a nice thing to have if we have card check. I think if you look back at the stats uh, where we've had card check for a short period of time because a progressive government came in, the NDP, for example, uh, came in and, and gave us card check for a little while, uh, you actually don't see unionization density go up too much uh, during that time. And there's a reason for that. It's because organizing is actually much more difficult than just signing people up. And so it's really access to the workplace. It's stopping the, the decline in unions, so having contract flipping language. So a lot of the times we organize a workplace, uh, it's a contracted out service, you know, you get a few hundred people into there and then the contract ends and they flip it to some other company. So we have contract flipping language uh, here in Ontario for food service and for custodial services and building services, but everything else is, uh, is outside of that contract flipping protection. So that would protect us and, and allow us to shift focus to actually organizing new workplaces as opposed to the same workplace over and over and over again. Oh, my Access to the workplace is, is very important. This to communicating to workers is very important because we're not allowed to use the employer's resources to communicate. So even if we did get employee emails, for example, uh, we're not allowed to just spam people with pro-union messaging, but the employer is allowed to sort of have these meetings with people and tell them that why they shouldn't organize a union. So balancing out those things, if you believe in the first place that there is a balance between labor and capital in the workplace without a union, then those things are good. But I think that you know what we're really asking for, and if you put it into the context of building democracy in the workplace, the idea that we have to organize up to a certain crazy bar of 50%, people need to agree that we have to have access to some democratic say is actually the, the main limitation. And I think that having those conversations about the way the private sector is organized and the way that the labor laws are structured, the idea that everything's a widget factory, that we just go in and organize all the workers in the widget factory, right? And there's 200 people that work there, there's two shifts and we organize them. Most workplaces aren't set up like that. And so the labor laws are not set up to the view of the modern workplace. Yeah, what does that look like on the ground for you, Noreen? I mean, what, what, what is making your life particularly difficult, at least when it comes to bargaining for your local? Is it that people don't know what's going on? Is it getting in touch with workers who are scattered all over the place and busy and tired? Is it an intransigent employer? Or is it liberalization of every last element of human existence what, until the planet burns out? What, I, I, could, I could go on, but I was starting to really bum myself out there. So yes, to all of the above. I think I am generally an optimistic person and 
one of our staff said, I'm like, what did he say? I'm like a deadhead, but for organizing, I've taken the organizing for power training like five times. And so I was really excited. So one of the things for our membership, it is very transient, right? With grad students, you come in, you're usually awarded a TA ship as part of your funding package and you're a priority teaching assistant, which means you're guaranteed a certain number of contracts for a certain number of years. And that changes whether you're a PhD student or a master's student, but you came to study, right? So there's a whole group of people who don't necessarily consider themselves workers. And then contract instructors all kind of fall into different pools, right? You have the folks who are coming into the university and they're teaching a course as like a specialist, like maybe they're a lawyer and they work at a law firm and they're coming to teach one class and they're actually donating their stipend back to the university. And then you have the members who this is how they're making their living. And because Carlton pays so badly, they're probably working at a bunch of other schools mm -hmm. as well. And so one of the ways in this round of bargaining that we've tried to contend with that, and I mean, we're lucky because we are part of the largest public sector union in the country. And so we put forward a couple of, they're called cost share campaigns, and we split the cost with UP National. But like actually being able to pay members to do the organizing work has been huge because our members are already so underpaid and overworked to ask them to do the work of organizing just for free, it's very hard. So what we've been doing in this round of bargaining is really trying to systematically go out and organize our workplace. So we started with like a bargaining priorities petition. And from that, we took what we learned and put that to use in the strike vote. And then we're trying to build on that now, looking at well, where do we have a lot of support? Where do we need to build more support? Who are the people who, if we talk to them and make sure that they have all the information, they're going to reach a large group of their colleagues. So like stewards are really important. And our steward network was a bit decimated by COVID, right? Like this is, this is a sector that when the pandemic hit, everything went online. And so you maybe didn't even really know who your colleagues were. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to build, build that back up and build those relationships. So it's difficult, but I'm also excited by how things have been going. And also it helps when the employer comes back with really egregious uh, wage offers. Yeah, as, as they are want to do. I want to close out in the last uh, few minutes that we have here by trying to make the case for unions and then talking about why we might be hopeful because I'm trying to be more hopeful these days because what's the alternative? I don't know, but there are some reasons to be hopeful. I want to come to those in a moment, but first I want to start with Graham and then come back to you, Noreen. I want to hear the case for unions. And that may seem like a silly question, but it's not because it may seem obvious to you and to me and to some of our listeners why we want to have unions on campus and throughout the province and throughout the country. Um, but there's a very powerful anti-union message out there. Uh, employers are at a structural advantage over workers and anti-union, let's call them arguments, uh, often propaganda, uh, can be very powerful. What's the response? What's the case for, for unionization? Start with you, Graham. The main case is having a say over your work environment. And that say can extend to 
things that most people don't realize. So it's not just wages and benefits, but it's also how safe your work environment is, whether or not you have a say over the type of chair you sit on, all those pieces of the work environment, but also having a say over your work as it relates to the employer and the broader economy are up. You can negotiate pretty much anything uh, in a collective agreement. The empowerment that comes with the understanding of that, and you, people really don't get that understanding without being in that situation where you actually, someone actually asks you your opinion and then it is implemented. That's the power of the union for me. And I work very closely with our organizing department here at the Canadian Union of Public Employees. And we do a lot of organizing campaigns and we get that, that question. But a lot of the questions that we get from folks is not, you know, why a union? It's, it's more of fear, right? It's fear of talking to you. It's fear of signing. It's fear of the uh, repercussions of that. I mentioned before that basically we have these two pieces of legislation in Ontario, the Labor Relations Act and the Employment Standards Act. Part of the, the, the question that we get from, from members uh, is really about their access to, to protections from retribution from the employer. And it's not just over organizing, but it's also uh, or signing a card or uh, you know, keeping that confidential. Uh, it's also being seen as somebody who rocks the boat and has a say over their workplace. And so the empowerment comes out of that democratization. It's also just really getting access to all of these rights, essentially, that fit under a different piece of legislation for people who are in a workplace that has a union. Those folks actually have access to more rights than people who don't have a union. And a lot of folks do not understand that. And as soon as you, you start explaining that, then it, it becomes, it crystallizes, I think, in people's minds about what it is that they can get. But I, I don't know a lot of anti-union messaging. I know that the employer has a lot of anti-union messaging. It's more of like, if you talk about a union, you're going to get fired, yeah. right? The, yeah. uh, the anti-union messaging, uh, you know, what's the anti-union? Oh, you might get a wage increase or, you know, like, I don't, I don't know what the anti-union messaging is for the private well, sector. We'll shut you, we'll shut you down. Right? We'll shut like, well, down. we can't, we yeah. can't carry if you unionize. Right? But I think that the piece that, you know, if you unionize, we, you know, won't be able to give you a wage increase because, you know, we don't make any money or what have you. Uh, I think that's, that's strong in the private sector. And the way we counter that is simply by saying every collective agreement is signed off on both sides. It's a, it's a negotiated settlement through bargaining. Mm -hmm. And uh, bargaining isn't, you know, putting a gun to somebody's head and telling them that they have to take something or leave it, which is the way it works without a union. When we bring the union in, it's, it's a negotiated uh, process. And then you understand, you know, where you are in relation to the, the revenue generation tools that the employer has. You've just offered such an eloquent case for unionization. I don't now I'm just going to reduce it to this constant thing that buzzes in my head because I really like the framing of a democratized workplace. I just think it's stupid that the default is that your workplace is not democratized. I mean, you spend roughly a third of your life there physically. It takes up mentally far more than that. It takes up in terms of energy far more than that. Your life is literally dependent on this thing. And we've turned it into a, a feudal arrangement that we thought we've grown out of 800 years ago, but we really haven't. And I just think it's profoundly stupid that these things aren't uh, democratic by default. They should be. But we also have to understand why, why that's the default, right? And I think that, you know, we would never consider, let's put it this way. Most people haven't organized their workplace, right? right. They've gone into a workplace that has a union. That's the way that most people become unionized. They don't organize their workplace from a non-organized workplace position. Many people in society, many workers, don't actually realize that when they're in a non-union workplace, 
that they can actually organize a union in the workplace. That was one of the main uh, main questions that I had when we were organizing the Atlantic. It's we don't yeah we don't need a union. Uh, we don't we don't have a union. We like what are you talking about? And so that is the weird position that we're up against is the fact that like you said the default being that there isn't one, unless of course you're in the public sector. And the public sector, of course, has uh, union density because it doesn't go out of business. And I think that is really part of why you see that disparity that you mentioned at the beginning of the show in terms of union density, public versus private. When private companies go out of business, the union goes with them. And so we need to constantly be actively organizing new workplaces in the private sector and not so in the public sector. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Noreen, I want to turn to you with the same question, but in in the context of campus specifically. Now, I have spent a lot of my life on university campuses as a undergrad student, as a master's student, as a PhD student, as a teaching assistant, as a research assistant, as an instructor. I've seen a lot of it. And let me tell you, it is a miserable life in many, many ways. Uh, It's not easy. It's not difficult. It's not quite the privileged life that a lot of detractors will make it out to be. Uh, But it's infinitely better for having had a union compared to not having had a union. I'm curious if if you can kind of elaborate the ways in which the local has shaped life for the better for uh, those who you represent. Yeah, so I'm going to, this is like a joke within 4600, but I'm going to talk about my local from my master's which is like really, my parents were teachers. So I grew up kind of involved with the teachers unions. And then when I was doing my master's, I was at York. And so I was a member of QP3903. And I could not have been a grad student without my local. They heavily subsidized uh, daycare. I was a single parent. I had an 18 month old when I started my master's. There was a daycare on campus. The benefits were great. Um, like 3903 has really gone to bat for their members. And my husband is still a 3903 member. And we, well, I just had a baby in September and 3903 paid for my doula. They paid for my breast pump. And I want that for 4,600 members, right? Like I want an emergency leaves fund for 4,600 members. I want extension of priority for 4,600 members. I want contract instructors to have an emergency leave fund. I want their benefits to continue when they're off on parental leave or where they're on sick leave. And um, I want a really strong local that when the employer transgresses, they're a little bit afraid of us because Mm -hmm. right now, so we are dealing, like we're, we're pursuing issues related to wage theft and violations of the Employment Standards Act with Carlton that have gone on for decades. And it's because we're starting to organize our worksite and notice things and be able to dedicate the resources to, in terms of for sure wages and benefits, but like Graham was saying, having a say in our workplace, right? Contract instructors teach about 50% of the courses and virtually every class has a teaching assistant. So we are intricately involved in the quality of education. And it is extremely important that we have a say. Like we know our workplace and uh, let's be real, nobody is at grad school or working as a contract instructor for the huge salary. Right? We make that's almost why I did nothing. It. That's why I did it. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> I did it for the 8,000 bucks or whatever it was. 
seven seven thousand five hundred, I think it is right now for a half credit course, approximately. Or what? Or or one trip to the grocery store. <laughs> half Thanks. a trip if it's Loblaws. Yeah. Thanks, Galen. <laughs> but Absolutely. yeah, so I mean, it's really you know you hear the Ford government talking about unions like they're they're, they're some third party group, but really it's a bunch of employees who got together and said, we care about this. Let's work together to make things better. Yeah. I I want to live in a world where bosses can't cross the street without hearing the Marseillaise play in the back of their head. I, 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 you know, have spent years talking about this sorts of thing institutionally. And one of the things I always say to groups, and it doesn't matter what kind of group they are, it could be it could be students, it could be journalists, it could be the public at large, it could be business stooges, it could be whatever. And I, and I always say, you know, it feels a lot like France right now, like in the early, you know, 1780s, where people kind of are saying, we are not having a good time, we want in. And they're knocking at the door and the knocking's getting louder and they keep getting sent away. And, you know, eventually, if you don't let them in, they let themselves in. And boy, when they let themselves in, it's so much worse because they're really, really angry. So I always say, let's do it the easy way now so that we don't have to do it the hard way later. But I promised that we'd end on a hopeful note. And I'm going to try to end on a hopeful note because I'm committed. It's 2023. This is a New Year's resolution. I'm committed. Hopeful note. And I'm going to start with you, Graham, and then Noreen, last word to you. Wins and gains. There's been some notable union wins, some advances in Canada, in the United States, some things that are, that people are excited about, some things we can look to and say, hell yeah. I mean, what stands out to you as particularly inspiring right now? I think what's inspiring are the large demonstrations, the large mobilizations, the large strikes, the innovation that we see in the strike uh, activity that's happening. Uh, we just went through the school board, you mentioned that, and almost ended up at a general strike. It was the first time in living memory that we actually got a government to withdraw a piece of legislation. The public did that. And the public did that because unions were able to mobilize uh, their members against it. And uh, the backstory for that strike, folks should read up about it because uh, you've never seen mobilization like that before. Um, And none of us can remember the last time uh, we had such a success in, in pushing back the government. Now, the that was a round of bargaining where the government went overboard, right? Tried to push back too fast, too hard, and try to impose, as opposed to bargain, a settlement. And that's what happened. So I think that you're seeing that in the UK and in Europe. You're seeing that in the United States and the mobilizations in the small workplaces. You're seeing that in the mobilizations in Amazon. The Amazon mobilizations, some of them are even, they're not even organized by unions, by the traditional industrial unions that are out there. And they're organized by just workers getting together and figuring it out for themselves. Uh, and unions are coming in as that happens and saying, what can we do to help? <laughs> um, because uh, there's that innovation. It's a new kind of, of workplace. So I really think that it's not just young people. A lot of people say it's the young people that are organizing. It is a lot of the young people that are, are getting involved because, of course, they're entering the workforce. But it, it's everybody. We talk to members and they are very angry. They are extremely angry at the situation. They can see exactly when they go to those grocery stores and they see how much they have to pay out and the fact that their wages are not gaining and they know that the profits are being given to the, the owners and that means that their wages don't go up. 
People understand that the conflict is now between wages and profits much more. So I see there's a shift. I think a lot of us see the shift. A lot of us see this sort of burning desire to do the organizing, the grassroots, the one-on-one conversations, and making sure that people understand their relation to the economy. I'm very hopeful moving forward. I think we've got new leadership at some of the main trade unions in the country in Canada. I see sort of these sprouts, these roots that were always there, uh, sort of sprouting new birth. And I think that that's a great thing. I think that we can support that. I think the old unions that have been around for a long time, they're full of people. They're just people, right? And they're all people dedicated to organizing the class and making sure that we actually can leverage that mobilization power and support it and actually get the wage gains and the environment and the decision-making that working people deserve in this country. I hear, hear to that. Okay. So Noreen, I'm going to close on you. What are you looking at right now in the union spaces and find yourself inspired by? I'll say I am but a lowly PhD candidate. So anyone listening to the podcast who wants to hire me to do organizing for the rest of my life, would be do super it, happy do with it. that. <laughs> do it. I know you're um, listening, people. <laughs> in geography. In geography. Most relevant field of all, master's in environmental studies. But we had a rally on Friday and we met in the quad on campus. We practiced our chants because at 4,600, we like to say, don't leave chance to chance. And <laughs> it's so true though, because what do you remember from a rally? You remember the chance. Mm-hmm. And then and we the marched pizza. over in the pizza. We marched over to Senate. There was no pizza. So all people can remember from us was, was the chance. But uh, I wrote a verse of solidarity forever, specifically tailored to contract instructors and teaching assistants. Maybe I should send it to you and you could have your team sing it. That could be like what rolls at the end of the credits or something while you're announcing your name. I think they would love their that. Names. I think I think so. That sounds, <laughs> um, it sounds like that. But, but the thing that I loved was, so, you know, we marched over to Senate and we got there and security didn't want us there. And they offered to let me go in and speak to Senate for like two minutes so that we wouldn't, we wouldn't disrupt the building. And part of what I love about being the president of union is that's not a decision for me. So I took that back. We rallied and it was like, well, you know, do you all want me to just go in and talk to Senate for two minutes or should we go and make some noise? And so we went and made some noise. (laughs) And then the president, the president of the university came out. And guess what? I still got to go in and give a speech to Senate. (laughs) So yeah, I I love that though. Cause like would would Noreen Kali Lefebvre march on Senate alone and go give a speech and yell? No. But as the president of 4600, absolutely. I love the solidarity. That's my favorite part. Utterly the critical part. I mean, we again. It's such a cliche to say it, but at the end of the day, folks are in this together. There are there are class interests that are shared by workers that aren't shared by bosses and owners. And um, that's the reason you organize is to get you yours because we are getting, and not to put too fine a point on it, but we are getting structurally screwed and um, we deserve better. I'd better leave it there because I'm just have so many more rants on the tip of my tongue but we're in the closing minutes so i want to thank each of you for joining me noreen and graham it was a fantastic conversation a lot of fun i think people will have learned a lot i have no doubt they support you and i hope that they weren't radicalized before they are tipping towards radicalization now join us 
Let the radicalization flow through you. You won't regret it. Thank you both once more for joining me here today. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for having us, David. And as always, my thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross Clark, and Aisha Jarrett, who make the show not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. I should have the disclaimer that everything that I say is me and me alone. So when you're writing up my surveillance file, you don't need to include them. It's just me. It's just me. You know where to find me. And to the rest of you, I hope you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you back here in two weeks. Bye.